0: I'm going to invite you to turn in your Bibles to the end of chapter 11 of Mark. That's where we are. We've been working through the gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. And as you turn there, I'm going to open with a little bit heavier than ordinary introduction. I wonder how many of you remember or recognize the name Timothy McVeigh, Timothy McVeigh. In 1995, he planted and detonated a bomb in the Alfred P. Murray Center, a federal building in Oklahoma City. The bomb killed 168 people. 19 of them were children. It was the deadliest act of terrorism in America prior to the September 11th attacks of 2001. He was indicted on 160 state offenses, 11 federal offenses. He was found guilty of all of them, and he was sentenced to death. Five years later, it was the day that he was going to be executed, and moments before his execution, it was clear that he felt no remorse for the things that he had done. He had, in his own mind, good reasons for why he did what he did. And if he were given the chance to go back in
1: time, he would have done it all again. He was given a chance to say his last words. And
0: he thoughtfully chose the words of a poem by William Ernest Henley, a poem titled Invictus, which in Latin means unconquerable, unconquerable. Let me read to you the poem. Out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Those were his last words. The poem is essentially a declaration of independence from God, a claim to be unconquerable, a claim to stand before death itself, unafraid, a a claim to fear no judgment, to fear no afterlife punishment. It is a claim to find strength in your own ability, your own independence, your own unconquerable spirit. I am a little embarrassed to say that when I first read this poem as a teenager, it captivated me. I had no idea of its connections to the murderer Timothy McVeigh. I had no idea how anti-Christ it was. But I think the reason it struck a chord with me was because at that point in my life, what I craved
1: was to be strong, to be fearless. Competent, confident, unconquerable is what I wanted.
0: I want to ask you, is it desirable to be unconquerable? Is it desirable? Is it something you want to be unable to be subdued? I think most of us might naturally answer, "Well, of course, because what's the alternative that I am conquered? And if I am conquered, then that means I am subdued. And if I am subdued, that opens me up to, what, abuse, manipulation, exploitation? I can be enslaved? If I am conquered, then I am saying or I am giving up something of my life to someone else who will assert authority over me. Who wants that? Any of you want authority over you? Someone else imposing their will on your life? If you're a Christian this morning, then the idea of submission to an authority outside of yourself is not a surprising claim. It's not, not something that you're unfamiliar with. Because every Christian here is one who has been conquered by Christ, has laid down his or her life at his feet, recognizing his lordship and not our own. But this is why, church, that Jesus is such a jarring figure, isn't he? Jesus is such a jarring figure because he appears in the pages of the Bible to be a conqueror. <laughs> he appears to make demands on us to come with all authority in heaven on earth and on earth, and to speak directly to us, making claims over every single aspect of our lives. Think of some of the things he says. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, we studied this a few months ago. You might remember it. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. What a claim. I mean, who is this man to, to barge into our lives and then to demand that we lay down our lives for him to listen to everything he says? His demand essentially is one of full, entire, complete devotion. Jesus demands that you love him more than you love your very own life. I mean, if you take the commands of Jesus seriously, you understand that this is some jarring stuff, right? So many people don't take this stuff seriously, or they only know Jesus from a distance. And you know, don't judge. That's about the extent of what they know about what Jesus taught. Treat others the way you would like to be treated. That's about as much as we know about what Jesus taught. But here we see Jesus... Claiming full authority over the lives of all people and saying, if you want eternal life, it is a requirement that you come after me, that you take up your cross, that you prepare to die, that you die to the world, and that you allow me to have full and complete authority over your life. The text we're in this morning is a text that highlights this reality about Jesus, that he has authority he has authority and that if you want to know jesus better even if you're an unbeliever and you're walking in this room if you're, you're not a christian we're so glad you're here we would invite you to come back again and continue learning with us from the bible if you're not a believer one of the things that you have to understand is that jesus did not just come as a rabbi to just teach good things good ethics about how we ought to treat one another, uh, just another set of morals. He also claim, came claiming authority over all people everywhere in all times. This is the these are the claims that we have to deal with if we're going to honestly deal with Jesus himself that he made such claims. And so to love Jesus is not merely to love a collection of good teacher teachings that, that make us feel good. It is to encounter someone who's making audacious, bold claims over our lives. We have to deal with this. And our text is a, a segment of Jesus' interaction with those who are questioning his authority and Jesus' response, which asserts, and establishes his authority. So you're going to be able to follow along much better if you have your Bible open. So I'd invite you to have Mark open, the Gospel of Mark open, to chapter 11, verses 27 to 33. I'm going to read the whole thing, and then I'm going to break it up, and we're going to walk through it, and we're going to see what's going on here. This is our ordinary way that we teach. We're trying to unpack the scriptures to not start with some topic we would like to talk about, but to study and draw from the text itself an understanding of what God is saying. Okay? So we're going to read the text. Follow along with me. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and as he was walking, that's Jesus, in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me. And I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying... If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's break this text up into four points, okay? It's going to help us work through the text itself. The confrontation in verses 27 and 28. We're going to look at Jesus' comeback in verses 29 and 30. We're going to look at their compromise in 31 and 32. And then Jesus' condemnation in verse 33. Let's start with the confrontation here. Verse 27 they came again to Jerusalem. Let's get a little bit of the context here. It's Tuesday morning of the last week of Jesus's life. So Sunday, you remember, he came in. He got on that colt. It's Palm Sunday. The crowds are all roaring as they are exciting. He's claiming in that entrance that he's the divine son of David, that they're coming into Jerusalem as the rightful king. He's coming in on that day. He comes in Sunday evening. He looks at the temple. He realizes that it's become a den of thieves. And he goes back to Bethany where he's staying in the evening uh, for the night. Monday morning, he comes in, curses a fig tree on his way in to make a living parable of the hypocrisy of Israel at that time. He goes right to the temple. He upends the place. He shuts the whole place down. He's flipping over tables. He's stopping people from walking through. He's shutting down the sacrificial system at that point. He's shutting it all down. And this is creating all kinds of uh, consternation in the leaders there watching Jesus do this stuff. What's going on? On Tuesday, uh, Monday night, they leave. On Tuesday, they come back in. They see the cursed fig tree. Uh, Jesus teaches them. And this is what we talked about last week, about the importance of faith, the importance of prayer, the importance of forgiveness. But now it's, it's Tuesday. They're back in Jerusalem, okay? It's Tuesday. Remember, on Thursday, he will have his last supper. On Friday, he will be on a cross. He will be killed by Friday. And it says there that he came into Jerusalem, but he didn't just enter the city, he went to the temple. The temple was, at this point, a place of a lot of buzz, a lot of activity. If you remember what we've been saying during this week, for the Passover feast, thousands of Jewish pilgrims would have been making their way to the temple with their with their animals, ready to make sacrifices. It was a time when this, the place was flooded. So there's all kinds of people. This is what's going on, and it says that Jesus was walking amongst the temple. Think of the temple. Don't think of something like the size of this building. Think of football fields, you know, four of them, you know, in a, in a kind of rectangle. It, it's a massive courtyard. It's a giant place, and Jesus is walking along the colonnades. He's got his disciples with him. And Luke gives us the detail, Uh, Mark doesn't mention it here, that that Jesus is teaching. He's in the temple and he's teaching. He's teaching the people. And at this point, there would have been all kinds of interest in Jesus. You better believe there was a buzz around Jesus. He'd been teaching for three years. He'd been doing miracles. He'd been demonstrating himself to have supernatural power he's demonstrating that he has the authority to forgive sins to walk on water to calm storms he's doing all this stuff thousands of people the crowds are all around him and now he's in the temple you better believe there is a buzz there is a kind of messianic fever going on right now everyone wants to know what jesus is saying and he begins walking like the custom was for a rabbi to walk amongst the temple and teach well, what's he saying? What what would be the content of his teaching? He would be teaching the gospel, Luke says. Luke actually makes it clear he was preaching the gospel in the temple. He had come to the place where the, the height of religious hypocrisy had taken root, and now he's put all that away, and now he is preaching the gospel. He would have been explaining the holiness of God. He would have been explaining man's utter sinfulness and inability to reconcile himself to God through his own works, through his sacrifices. He would have understood, he would have been making it very clear that self-righteousness and hypocrisy is a big problem before a holy God who sees right through it all. He would have been teaching that God saves sinners by grace. Not by works that you can do, not by your self-righteousness that you can attain, but it's by sheer mercy and grace. I wonder if there was any people who showed up with a lamb, and Jesus maybe would have pointed out that that he was the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, and he would have pointed to the reality that the wages of sin is death. And he may be even hinting at his own upcoming death in the place of sinners. It doesn't say all that he taught, but we do know that he's preaching the gospel. He's making it clear that God is calling people to repent and to trust him. And that this false religion that had been taken, had taken the temple was misleading people. It was taking them away from God. He's walking through the temple. And here, look at the next line here. And the chief priests, and the scribes, and the elders came to him. Not some chance meeting in the temple; they came to him. It says, "Who are these? Who are these guys? Who are these characters on the scene?" We've seen them before. This is a delegation of the ruling class of Israel that was called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of about seventy men. Uh, seventy men. Some of them were high priests. The high priests were former chief priests, or sorry, the chief priests were former high priests. After they served their time in high priest, they were made a chief priest. They could also be appointed by Herod. Herod had no interest in the actual religion of Judaism at that time. He just put, chose the wealthiest families, the people he wanted in power. He put them and made them the chief priests. They became the high priests. You have the scribes here. The scribes were like the scholars. The scribes were the ones that were uh, masters of the Old Testament, masters of rabbinic tradition and rabbinic interpretations of the Old Testament. These would have been the scholars. These would have been the intellectual powerhouses. If you want to make an argument from the Bible, you would have brought a scribe with you uh, because this is their expertise. If you wanted to have a true understanding of the law, you grabbed a scribe. So you got your, your chief priests, you got your scholars, the, the scribes coming along, and then you get these elders the elders were laymen. Elders in Jerusalem would have been significant uh, men. They would have been wealthy men chosen to rule and to have authority. This is the Sanhedrin. This is an official delegation sent by the group to go confront Jesus. They're the, they're the government. They're, you know, Rome didn't want to deal with all the Jewish problems, uh, governing the Jews. Uh, what did they do? They, they let the Sanhedrin deal with those things. So the, the Sanhedrin actually had a level of authority to govern issues going on in the Jewish nation. In fact, in the book of Acts, uh, the Sanhedrin is allowed to arrest Christians. So they have authority here, and here they are approaching Jesus. Get the scene in your mind, by the way. Like, try, to, try to envision this. They're coming to Jesus. These are the leaders. These are the scholars. They would have been nicely dressed. They would have had an air of importance with them. There would have been thousands of people, perhaps, in the temple courtyards. And I imagine as they're walking up to Jesus, all eyes stop. The chattering and murmuring goes silent, and they look to see this confrontation. You're about to confront the most famous, popular rabbi in Israel, this kind of rebel rabbi Jesus who hasn't been doing all the things that they want. And they're going to try to shut him down. In fact, these are the highest members of this Sanhedrin coming to confront him. I imagine there's a level of silence. As everyone goes, What's, what are they going to say? What are they going to do to him? Just the previous day, Jesus had entered that place, knocked over tables, coins spilling everywhere. And now they're going to deal with Jesus. This is a face-off. In verse 28, look what it says. It says that, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? It's a question of authority. Authority. The word in Greek is exousia. It's the idea of being free to choose. You are not bound by anyone else's law or anyone else's opinion, anyone else's choice. You have the right. You have the freedom. You can be the one who decides. That's what this exousia is. Authority is that no one can stop you. If you choose to enter the temple and if you choose to turn over tables, that that is your right. That's the authority to do that. Who gave you this authority? And that's what the word these things, that's what he's, they're, they're talking about. They're going, who, who, by what authority are you doing these things? What are the, the, these things? It's the temple that just got messed up the previous day. That, that's, what we're talk, that's what they're talking about. Who, who do you think you are to go into God's temple and to go upset this sacrificial system and to put an end to all the things that are happening there? Who do you think you are, Jesus? What kind of authority do you think you have? Now, let me ask you, if you're familiar at all with what we've been teaching the, in, in Mark, do, do you think the scribes here are like really genuinely interested about Jesus' authority? The answer is no. All, all along, all they've been doing is trying to trap Jesus. They, they, they see Jesus as a threat. They want to hold on to their own power, and Jesus is getting in the way of that. And so they've been trying all along to catch him some way, and they'll do it again in the next chapter. They come to him with a question, and what they're trying to do is smear him. This is a smear campaign. They want to discredit him. If they can vilify Jesus, they can win. If they can get the crowds against Jesus, they can win. And so they're going to try to prove, hey, this guy, Jesus, and they want to do it in a public way, by the way. They they want to prove this guy has no credentials. He has no authority. Why are you all listening to him? He is nobody. He's a no one. You shouldn't listen to him when he comes in and teaches you. He has no authority to enter in the temple. Who do you think you are, Jesus? This is the heart of the question. Where are your credentials, Jesus? And they want to do that publicly so that Jesus is discredited before the crowds. And now we come to the comeback. That was the confrontation. It's a dramatic confrontation, but Jesus gives an amazing comeback. In verse 29, Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. First notice that he's not unwilling to answer the question. He will answer the question on a condition. They have to first answer this question. What's the question? Verse 30, was the baptism of John, that's referring to John the Baptist, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. I like how Jesus is a little bit pushy here. You ever think that Jesus is only ever meek and mild? Not always the case. Not when he's always dealing with these Pharisees. Read Matthew 23. Uh, Jesus will get in their faces. He will be a little bit confrontational, even aggressive. He says, answer me twice. In other words, he's taking the authority from their own grasp they come in thinking they're the ones asking questions. They come in thinking they're the ones going to ask the questions and expose them. And Jesus grabs authority straight out of their hands and starts asking them questions. He goes, answer me. He says, answer me twice. Answer me. Because I got a question for you. Answer me. He has a comeback. And the, and the question is about John the Baptist. Was his ministry from heaven, and that's the idea of was it, was it from above? Was it God's Ministry was was John a true prophet? Is what he's saying. It was John's ministry from God. Was it a divine ministry? Is it all that it was described as being? If you're unfamiliar with John's ministry, you can go back and read the beginning of Mark, read chapter one, the beginning verses. You'll you'll see that he was a prophet that came in fulfillment of the uh, prophecies in Isaiah. That he came as the forerunner for the Messiah. That he had a message uh, that one should repent of their sin and come to trust in Jesus. And not only that but that also there was one coming after him that was greater than him. The true Messiah, God in the flesh, had come. Was this ministry that John had a legit ministry? Was he a legit prophet? Was he legitimately speaking on behalf of God as a prophet does? Or, was this a whole man-made thing. Just an issue of a guy getting overhyped, making up a message, thinking he's some sort of messianic figure, and therefore completely irrelevant. That's the question. I want to pause right now and just talk about something that's not the main point of this text, but something we can all learn. Jesus responds to their question with a question. I want you to see that this is a really good way to teach and to learn It's to ask questions. Think about it in the Bible. Adam and Eve, running from God after they've first sinned, God says, where are you? Do you think God in that moment lacked his omniscience? Or is he drawing out from something, drawing out from them something? Where is Abel, your brother? Did God forget? Or is he teaching? When Moses is afraid to speak on behalf of God and help set Israel free from bondage in Egypt, God asks
1: Moses, who made man's mouth? When Job is facing
0: all kinds of suffering and is tempted to find fault with God, what does God do? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Or when Jonah's pouting under the leafy branches, waiting for Nineveh Nineveh to be destroyed, is it good for you to be angry? If you want to be an effective teacher, learn from Jesus here to ask good questions. If you want to be a good learner, learn to ask yourself good questions. Aren't the best counselors the ones with all the right questions? Haven't the most transformative moments in your life been the times when you've been asked the perfect questions, forcing you to think in ways you had not thought before and to engage in a way you had never engaged before? Parents, do you think that Learning to ask your children good questions could help them think through life, and the issues that are facing them? Can you tell that I'm using this rhetorical device right now? And isn't it true that you can't help but be engaged? I think it's true and that Jesus is wise, and if we want to help one another, learn to ask each other really good questions. What Jesus does here is he asks a question that exposes, and then he requires an answer. Answer me. Answer me. Is the baptism of John from heaven or from man?
1: The question is a doozy. Have you guys played chess? There are some of us who play chess, but we don't
0: play chess, if you know what I mean. I know the rules of chess, but I don't play chess. I I can play chess, but I don't play chess. And so there are times when I'm playing chess and I'm making a move that I just think is going to absolutely befuddle the guy. And I go right here and I'm thinking, all right, I got him. I got him. And then he goes, he chuckles to himself and it's like wham, bam, checkmate. And I go, what? I, I, I can't think that far ahead. I don't, I'm not that good at this. Yeah, it just, it always gets me. There's some people just playing 10 moves ahead. Jesus is an absolute grandmaster right here. He's thinking 10 steps ahead of these guys. They come thinking they got him trapped. We got him. He's not going to be able to answer this authority question. He's not going to do it. And Jesus just checkmates them right here. They, they, they are sent reeling because of Jesus' comeback and he exposes inconsistency, hypocrisy, most importantly, their unbelief. Watch this. Look at verse 31. And this is our, our third point, the compromise. They're going to have to compromise their own convictions because of their fear of man. Watch this. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, then why did you not believe him? You see what they're getting at. If, if John's ministry was all about Jesus, wasn't it? J- Jesus was the subject of everything John did. Jesus was the point of John's ministry. John showed up saying, uh, repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't claim to be the king. He was pointing to the coming king. It was the same message that Jesus would end up preaching when he came. And then he started saying that I'm not the one, uh, I'm pointing you to the one who is to come. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. There's someone else coming. It's all about him. When he saw Jesus, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's him. When he saw Jesus, he said, he must increase, I must decrease. It's not about me. All of what John did, all of his ministry, all of his baptism, and baptism is, by the way, just shorthand for talking about everything John did, all of it was about Christ. And so what does that mean? If the baptism of John was from heaven, if it was legitimate, what does that mean about Jesus? If you accept John's ministry, what else must you accept? Jesus' ministry, okay? And so they go, if we say that he's from heaven, then Jesus is going to say, why didn't you believe him? Because if they believe John, they're obligated by logical necessity to believe Jesus as well. But they're not willing to do that. Oh, no, they don't want to believe Jesus. They're okay with John being a prophet, but they just don't want Jesus to be who he said he was. So they know that that's option A is off the table. Well, what about option B? Verse 32, if we say from man, they almost pause, you know, mid-sentence. If we say from man, it says, they were afraid of the people for they all held... That John was really a prophet. If we say that it's from man, and if we say that John's ministry was not divine, if we say that it's purely a man-made thing, it's an overhyped guy who got a big following, but actually is illegitimate and irrelevant. You know, if we say that, though, there's a problem there, too. What's the problem? That everyone here believes John actually is a legitimate prophet. Everyone listening actually thinks that John is a prophet of God who spoke on behalf of God. And if we say that he's not, they're going to be mad at us. They won't like us. In fact, in Luke's account, it makes it clear that they thought they would get killed by the people. They might get stoned by the people if they said that he was not actually a prophet. Option A, we say John's legit, but then we're inconsistent. Option B, John's not legit, but if we say that, we're in danger of losing our own lives, most certainly our respect before the people. What do they opt for? Option C. Verse 33, so they answered Jesus, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know whether John's ministry was from heaven or from man. In other words, you know what option C is? Tell a lie. That's option C. Tell a lie. I would rather tell a lie. These guys would rather tell a lie. They, they actually did have convictions about who they thought John was. They just didn't want to say them out loud. They didn't believe John was true. They, in fact, in earlier accounts... In the Gospel of Luke, it says that they actually refused to be baptized by John. They did not recognize his baptism. They thought that he was some popular figure, but they didn't want to do anything with the truth. None of the religious leaders at this point did. They were all, at this point, entirely apostate, so they don't want anything to do with Jesus. They, don't want it, they didn't want anything to do with John But they also don't want to compromise their power amongst all the people. They don't want to get the people against them. And so they're unwilling to state. Follow this. They are unwilling to state what they actually believe. Why? Because they're afraid of what the people might think. Consider that. Unwilling to say what they actually believe because they're afraid of what people might think. I wonder if you noticed, though, What's actually lacking in their little discussion, their little, their little huddle? Like they, they're so reeling, they get asked this question, all the crowds are watching, they don't know how to respond, they like break up into this little group on their own, they start dialoguing about what we should say, we can't say option A, we can't say option a, or, or, or B, we're going to go with option C, we're just going to lie. You know what was entirely left out of the discussion? This is a really important point, the big glaring issue. The big thing they just left out—the big elephant in the room—no one wanted to bring up. Like you got the chief priests, you got these scribes, They're supposed to be the scholars. You got the supposedly these holy men, these elders. Uh, all of them are supposed to, uh, you know, lead Israel. This big glaring
1: issue that none of them are willing to address. You know what it is? It's this question: What if John actually was a prophet? What if he was telling the truth? What if he was from God? They're operating on purely human terms
0: here. They're, they're not even asking the question whether it might have been true that God spoke through John and whether John was the forerunner for the actual Messiah. That's, that's not even on their radar. What they're most concerned about is well, holding onto their power. You see that? They want their power. They want their reputations intact so they can have control over the people, so they can manipulate them. That's what they want. And isn't it true that our grasp of the truth and even our own convictions are always in jeopardy by a desire to be popular? Unwilling to say what they believed, even though they're wrong about what they believed, they are unwilling to say it because they were afraid of what people might think. How petty, and yet how human. Now, if you're not a Christian this morning, I want to ask you to consider something as it relates to this text. Maybe you're not a Christian for some reasons. You find it to be too narrow. Maybe you're not a Christian because you've known Christians who are hypocrites. Maybe you're not a Christian because you're not quite sure you agree with the morals that it teaches But have you considered that those concerns are not the main issue? The main issue is not whether you think it's narrow or whether some Christians have been hypocrites. They have. Or whether you agree with it or whether it's popular. The
1: main question is, is it true? What if it's actually all true?
0: There are some people, like these religious leaders, who are just unable to ask that question because it's a threatening question. And non-Christian, if you're here this morning, I'm so glad you're here, and I would just beg with you to ask the question, well, what if it's all true? What if it's real? I hope that you would not be controlled by fear of what other people might think of you if you suddenly were to become a Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, God-fearing, church-going person, could it be that your fear of what might be thought of you is what's holding you back from fully embracing the gospel? It is a petty concern to be so concerned, to, to be not concerned about our eternal soul because we're concerned about what people might think. But we are petty. Human beings just are. We're sinful and we hold on to these little things that we make into big deals. When our souls are on the line, we would sometimes be more concerned about what people might think than what might happen to us when we die. This is a big deal and the religious leaders are demonstrating their inability, unwillingness to wrestle with the question, is it true? Is it true that John spoke from God? Is it true that Jesus is the true Messiah? Don't you think that that's a question worth wrestling with? What if Jesus was as he said he was the son of God? What if he actually did die and rose from the dead? As the people closest to him did believe. And as thousands, even millions since his resurrection have also believed. I'm confident that if you are an honest inquirer and if you read the Gospel of Mark fairly, you will find it to be historical.
1: You will find Jesus to be real. And you will see it's all true. I would ask you to consider, maybe this week, doing just
0: that, reading through the whole Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters, and asking yourself, is it true? Is it true? And maybe you'll join the scores and scores of people who did just that and found themselves in humble repentance before Jesus, recognizing the truthfulness of his claims. Let's go back to the text. The question has exposed them. They strutted into the temple like peacocks, wearing their holy garments and flaunting their high positions, and everyone would have recognized them right there as the most righteous people, the most educated, coming to face off with this rabble-rouser Jesus and with one question, they're decimated, exposed to be people who don't actually care about the truth. They're not actually concerned about God's glory. They're not actually concerned about people. They are sniveling politicians. They are cowards. They are trying to keep up a certain reputation before men rather than stand for anything. They have no spine, no backbone. They live for nothing and they'll die for nothing. They have nothing on their minds except their pockets and their own power. And Jesus exposes all that admirably, doesn't he? In one sentence. Just one last thing before we move on to our last point. We should be warned by these religious leaders, shouldn't we? It is entirely possible to be a respected scholar who devotes his or her life to studying the Bible, to be recognized as a holy person who supposedly knows God, to be admired by other religious people, and yet to be anti-God and anti-Christ, just as these people are. I believe there will be many preachers who preached the gospel in hell because the message they preached they never made their own. And I believe, as according to the teachings of Jesus himself, that there will be many who claimed to do many mighty works in the name of Christ who will be on the last day condemned because it was all a show. It was all religion and no true relationship with Jesus. And it would also be a warning for those of us to be concerned about the leaders that we look up to. Are their lives marked by true and genuine holiness? Or is there evidence there's just posturing that they're power hungry? And that there's no conviction so long as they have control? I've read many people, I have books in my office written by scholars whose day job is to study the Bible, but it is a Bible they do not believe. These are compromised leaders. And in our day, there are many compromised leaders. And we ought to be diligent to know how to identify them. One would be to look at their character. And the other way would be to look at their teaching. Do they teach the Bible, not their own opinions? The fourth section here, we finally come to chapter, or sorry, verse 33, the condemnation. It says, they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus refuses to give them an answer. All of Jesus' teaching is always redemptive. You know what that means? Its aim is always to help people understand who God is, who they are, what Christ has done and doing so that they might turn from sin and trust in Him and experience redemption. All of Christ's teaching is redemptive. And so, for Jesus to withhold an answer is an act of judgment. This silence is a form of condemnation that just as he symbolized it in the fig tree being cursed, just as he foreshadowed it in the temple being overrun and tables being turned, so now he enacts it speaking directly to the delegation of the highest ranked leaders in Israel. He now says, I will not tell you the answer that you've come to me asking. You see, these men had been around for three years, and they'd heard about Jesus. Oh, believe me, they'd heard about his miracles, they'd heard about his power, they'd heard about his teaching, they'd heard it all. There there was no lack of evidence that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God, everything that he claimed to be, he was, and there comes a day that after one rejects the truth, and rejects the truth, and never responds to the truth, and hears the truth, and understands the truth, and still rejects the truth, there comes a day that you
1: are rejected by the truth. See, here now Jesus is rejecting them. I'm not going to answer you, Jesus says. I'm not going to tell you the truth
0: about my authority. Because you have heard it, and you know it, and even if I did say it, you would reject it anyway. You've been hearing it. The light has come. The light has come. The light has come, and the darkness has just hated the light. They don't want anything to do with it, and now you will remain in darkness, essentially is what Jesus is saying to them. I will no longer cast the pearls before the swine. This is God's message. And I want to warn everyone here this morning that it is entirely possible for you to hear the word and ignore it, to listen to it and not apply it, to understand it and never practice it, and eventually God stops casting the pearls before the swine.
1: And it's time for judgment. Now, if you're still here this morning... I'm praying that you have ears to hear,
0: heart to open up and receive the truth, because I don't know, this could be the last time you ever hear the Christian gospel. If you reject it, again and again and again, there comes a time when just as Jesus did to these leaders, I will not tell you where my authority comes from. I don't know when the light goes out. If you're still hearing, I pray, or here, I pray that you would hear this morning. And to understand that God has authority over your life and he invites you to come to him. As I prayed before we opened up the text, it's something I want to impress upon all our minds is that God. And what Jesus is making very clear here is that Jesus has authority over the temple, authority over the church, authority over every individual, authority over all men. He has authority over your everlasting soul. It is in his hands to bring you into eternal glory in heaven or in his hands to send you to eternal condemnation in hell. He is the one with that authority. He is the only one with that authority. And he is also the one who loves you more than anyone else has ever loved you. And he invites you to come to him in repentance and faith, to trust him. To recognize that you are a sinner. That you are guilty. And he has authority over you. And he invites you in in the most loving way. To say come. Come to me if you're weary and you're burdened. And you're broken and you're bruised and you're bloodied and all the rest. And your life stinks. And you know you're a wreck. He says come. Why would you not come? Why would you not come to the love of your soul? Why would you withhold? Why would you stiff arm him? He has all authority in heaven and on earth and he loves so greatly the people whom he's made and he
1: invites you to come. You wouldn't want to leave this room this morning rejecting the omnipotent Lord of all
0: Who desires to bless you in ways you could never fathom and for all eternity
1: for a petty reason. Concerned about what other people might think. You're concerned that it might be too hard. You're
0: concerned how how it might disrupt your life.
1: Can you see in this text who Jesus truly is and what he's claiming? He has authority. They weren't allowed to hear where it came from, but we know it came from heaven. Because he is God, very God. Christian, there is no part of you, not even the deepest, darkest corners of your heart, where you are allowed to say to Jesus, do not enter. He has authority. Are you keeping him out? Are there areas of your life where you are unwilling to recognize Jesus' authority? Your finances, your marriage, private sins, Jesus says all authority. And if you're not a Christian, there are really two options for you.
0: You can follow in the footsteps of Timothy McVeigh. They started off the sermon quoting his last words, the poem "Invictus." You you could claim, as he did, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And you will find that that road leads to hate,